to ask for your intention, some uh, thoughts on the wider context of practice. I'd like to revisit the theme of the famous teaching on quote unquote the four noble truth. Um, which is not so straightforward as um, I have been believing for many years in my life. Um, so as you will be aware, the Buddha is by the Buddhist tradition often considered to be a doctor, a therapist, a wound surgeon, um, a healer for the whole of Buddhist traditions, we have this metaphor, or this analogy, more precisely this analogy of the Buddha as the supreme healer with the exquisite balm for the ills of the world. Um, he himself says that in the Pali Canon a number of times, that he has found freedom and that he is now acting as a as a medicine, as a, as a doctor, as a person to apply, to help and bring medicine, help the medicine being applied, uh, the Indian tradition, already the early Indian tradition, the Sanskrit Buddhist tradition, uh, has the image of Baisaja Guru, the, um, the Buddha as a healer, as a medicine person, the teacher as a uh, medicinal support and that goes across the Indian tradition and kind of culminates in the Tibetan tradition where Sanja Mendla, the medicine Buddha, takes, takes on a transcendent role. And uh, This theme is very old, it makes in many ways sense, uh, even more sense when you understand that these Four Noble Truths may not actually be truth at all. Um, when I learned about these Four Noble Truths, then they, they basically, they were, you know, they were statements. They were the sort of aerial photography of Buddhism of Sangsara, very, very high up. Yeah? So the famous teaching in the Mahahati Padopama Sutta, where the Buddha says, the elephant's footprint, yeah, as all footprints of any animal fits into the footprint of the elephant, so do all teachings fit into the teaching of the Four Noble Truth. Yeah, famous big statement. Um, so I, for many years, understood this truth to be basically the, in many ways, the quintessence, you could say, about Buddhist teaching. So you could pack everything in there. It's strange to find that um, the term satcha and the term truth may not actually mean quite the same thing. It is surprising to hear from Indologists that the term satcha may not actually have been there in the first place. So then we would have the four. <laughs> um, and it is even more strange to uh, read the confusion that already exists in the commentarial literature. The great commentator Buddha Gosa gives 
true interpretation of what noble truth means or what Arya Satya means in his commentary in the Diga Nikaya. This is one meaning is um, this is the truth of the noble ones. So the noble is referring to the people who have realized this truth. It doesn't refer to the truth they have realized. And the other is uh, these truth give rise to nobleness. Yeah. So in other words, the truth again are not noble, but they are ennobling. Yeah. Um, this is the icon of Theravada Buddhism. Yeah. This is Theravada Buddhism is Buddha Gosa. Yeah. There is no Theravada Buddhism before Buddha Gosa. Just to be clear about this, yeah. Theravada Buddhism is a late invention. It's not an early invention. It's, um, we now know our physically oldest texts have been uh, written down in the first, possibly even in the second century BC. They were not Pali texts. They were uh, texts, as we have only just found out ten years in the last ten years, they were texts belonging to the Prajnamita texts, and uh, that is possibly a hundred years earlier than even the Pali tradition claims to have written down, started writing down their texts. While there, has, uh, there is no doubt in my mind that what we have in Pali goes back to uh, an oral tradition that is uh, very likely to go back to directly to the Buddha, uh, physical evidence of the Pali. We only have uh, in the edicts of Ashoka, rock edicts and pillar edicts, and then there's a huge gap, and then we have a few gold leaves from about the third century in Burma, and then there is another huge gap, and then we have a few leaves of monastic discipline somewhere in a Nepali library from the 8th century. So our physical evidence of polytext is actually pretty scant. Yeah. And we do have other, much older physical manuscripts from so-called later Buddhist tradition, um, which is quite a surprise. Some of the history of early Buddhism will have to be rewritten. Usually that doesn't concern Buddhists because Buddhists tend to not read uh, Indologist research. So Buddhists tend to think of Indologists as people who are not practicing, who are just making academic careers out of their chosen faith, and they're definitely not worth listening to because um, they're not serious Buddhists. Um, I think it would be good if Buddhist practitioners would take into account a little more of Buddhist research. Much, much about the Buddha and his teaching could be learned from there. Not because the academic Indologists necessarily have profound wisdoms to declare, but they can help us uh, acknowledge some of our own beliefs. Not all of them are Buddhism. Just because we have Buddhist names for these beliefs doesn't necessarily mean that the Buddha has to be blamed for them. Um, and also we don't really know as much of Buddhist teaching, Buddhist traditions, Buddhist oral lineages as we pretend to know. You know. We're really at the beginning of this. And we sometimes have a, 
rather flimsy evidence for the conviction we uh, display. So it is interesting to see the greatest Theravadan commentator, a man who lived 900 years after the Buddha, a man who came from southern India of Brahminical stock, who is credited with writing down most of the commentaries and particularly a big piece of anthology called the Visuddhimaka, the Path of Purification. Um, and this edifice, both the Path of Purification is something like the pillar and then the, the commentaries he wrote that form a sort of a marquee, basically. Yeah, this is the tent. The Visuddhimaga is the tent pole and the commentaries are the sort of the, the canvas that shield a particular interpretation of the Pali teachings. Now this particular interpretation has now gone down as Theravada Buddhism and it finds its formation in the writing down of uh, this great commentator called Buddha Gosa, who lived in Sri Lanka. What happened before that, we have only, we only get small glimpses. We know there have been hundreds of years of practicing, practice traditions in India. We know they were of sometimes differing opinions. We know that they all seemed to uh, have their textual transmissions. So they had their collections of texts. Um, and some of these texts were uh, in middle Indo-Aric dialects like Pali. Some of them were in what is now considered to be bad Sanskrit. Uh, so we also know that these texts were translated. In fact, it is probably reasonable to assume that the Pali texts we know are already translations. Yeah. It's pretty sure that the Buddha did not speak Pali, although probably something fairly close. Um, but we do not have reason to believe that everything in Pali is pristine truth and everything that is not Pali is basically later degenerative sort of Buddhism. I think that belief we can safely discard. Um, there are bits of the Pali Canon which may be substantially younger than uh, bits of Buddhist texts that come down to us in early Sanskrit traditions. Um, not everything in Pali goes back to immediately the Buddhist teachings. There is interpretive work going on and the compilation of Buddhist texts, even the Satipatthana Sutta, is probably the work of generations and generations of uh, monks and in some cases nuns. Um, so, Footnote closed. Coming back to Buddha Gosa and his interpretations of the Four Noble Truths, or the term Aryasatcha, the Pali for Noble Truth, um, interpreting them not as Noble Truths at all, but interpreting them as A, the truth of Noble Ones, or B, the, the truth that give rise to nobility. Yeah. Which means that at least at the time of Vadantajarya Buddha Gosa in the 5th century AD, uh, our version of the Four Noble Truths was not the most likely of interpretations. In fact, in one of his other commentarial works, he gives six other interpretations, of which the last one is Four Noble Truths. Yeah. And it is clear 
from the sequence in which he explains this, that he seems to think this is the least likely interpretation. So we are settled with this strange comp compound noun, Arya Satya, Four Noble Truths. And when you look at these truths, already early last century, there's a, a Russian scholar, a famous, highly ingenious guy named Cherbatsky, who said, the closer you look at these so-called truths, the more you recognize they're not actually a doctrine, but just a formula. Yeah? They're a principle to be applied. A principle that, and that brings us back to the analogy of the doctor, or the, the medicine man, or the healer, who has a particular approach to his patient. And the approach is very simple. He says, you know, what, what are the symptoms? So the first of the truth, you can say, is basically the approach of identifying a symptom. Yeah. So while a doctor identifies a symptom, um, you open up a case history and say, what, what is happening? You know, when, have, when has the pain begun? And in a way you can understand that first noble truth to be clearly equivalent of that approach. You know, does it hurt? Yeah. Does it hurt? Is there pain? Is there dissatisfaction in your life? And right here, you have to decide whether you understand something of the Buddha's teaching on Dukkha. If you think this is not really happening to you, the Buddha has not really much to offer to you. If for some reason you think that you're exempt from Dukkha, that this doesn't take place in your life, then that was it. Buddhism is basically out of the window because you, you don't suffer. It's like, you know, you don't go to the doctor. Fair enough. Whatever his skills are, his whole craft, his knowledge, his therapeutic and diagnostics, expertise, all this is lost on you as long as you don't go there and say, look, it hurts, can you do something about this? So the pattern of those four truths in many ways resembles uh, a medical approach. The first step would be the identification of a symptom. The second would be uh, the attempt to find out where that symptom comes from. Well, you would, if you want to put a fancy word in it, you could put it, call it etiology. Yeah? What is the cause of this? You would look, does this have a condition that brings it up? Is this an accident? Is this a dietary issue? Has this to do with climate? Is it an infection? Uh, does it go back to a bruise? This kind of thing. Yeah? So the second, the second step tries to identify the symptoms and connect them with some form of behavioral or situational issue in the person's life that suffers. And it's not difficult to see that the second of the Noble Truths does exactly that. It tries to establish not just that something is painful, but whether this can be connected. In fact, it, it makes some... Um, there is a, a certain suspicion that the pain in your life has something to do with desire you act on. I've only ever thought that this is a shortcut, that, that Tanha, as the second noble truth, is a shortcut for Tanha Upadana, for desire and grasping. It's never really appealed to me to think that uh, desire is the reason for death. Buddha didn't have any desire and still died. <laughs>
You know, has never been terribly plausible to me. You know, and taking on this whole project of rebirth as an explanation of uh, conditionality between suffering and desire seemed a little far-fetched. Most of Buddhist teaching um, does not resort to having uh, having a big theory of rebirth which meant something rather different in Indian context than it tends to mean to us. And most of Buddhist teaching is fairly easy, verifiable. It's very straightforward. The conditions and causes that are at play are not difficult to establish. Once our attention has learned to focus, once our stillness has reached a certain depth, once our honesty has reached a certain consistency, and uh, our discernment has grown, it's generally not difficult to verify the validity of what the Buddha was speaking of. That's why we're here, because the stuff is fairly plausible. Yeah? Most of us uh, come here because we find this is highly plausible, it's highly pragmatic, it's highly applicable, even though our theoretical understanding of Buddhist concepts generally lags way behind. Yeah? of what we actually experience. This is not the case in the time of the Buddha. You know, people's conceptual understanding was pretty much up on the mark with their practical experience, at least for many, many people, because the culture supported this in better ways than our culture does. So I believe Tanha as the, second, as the cause for suffering to be shorthand for Tanha and Upadana, for desire and grasping, because it's the grasping which really causes the pain. It's the grasping that creates identification. It's the grasping which reifies experience, reifies a self-construct, reifies you, reifies my world. It is, this act is called, uh, desire alone doesn't do this. I need to act on this desire. I need to believe this desire. I need to follow through on this desire. I need to be not just having the impulse. I need to actually f go about it bloody-mindedly. Yeah? Then things really start happening. The third of the steps, again, is a medical step. It says, look, can something be done about this condition? Can, um, is there a prognosis? So the first one is a, a symptomatology, the second one is a diagnosis, the third one would be the prognosis. Can something be done about this suffering thing? You know, some things can be cured, something can't. Can't cure a common cold still nowadays. You can just wait till it goes over. Nobody has ever managed to cure a common cold. Well, you either die of it or you tend to survive it these days and maybe somebody gives you a few aspirin and attenuating a few side effects basically but nobody can cure even a simple thing as a common cold so some things you just have to wait until it gets better uh, some things it doesn't get better when you wait something needs treatment and some things despite treatment doesn't go take a good end yeah. So the prognosis is uh, a big issue. It says, uh, is there a way out of this? If you apply that to the teaching of the Four Truths, the news is good. 
the news is such that yes, there is a way out, and it is uh, the realization of c cessation is possible. It's possible that things can take hold, that can that things can cease, and with that cessation, suffering falls away. Suffering is arrested in a way. If I remember correctly, the Greek uh, Escolapios, the healer, had to deal with death. If, I think if death was standing at the head end of the patient, then he couldn't heal him. If he was standing at the feet, he could, he could, the patient could be cured. So that was the deal of Escolapios, the deal. Yeah. Um, in the case of the Four Noble Truths, the message is good. The Buddha is quite unequivocal and says, there is a freedom that beckons, uh, there is a cure for the suffering that arises from desire and attachment. And this cure can be found, this cure can be realized, it can be manifested. And that basically constitutes the fourth of the steps in medical treatment, you know, if you're good, if your doctor is a good doctor, he doesn't just studies and examines your condition and gives you then a impressive sounding diagnosis. Um, and um, tells you a few things about your illness. He or she also gives you a treatment. He or she also offers a therapy. And as we all know, Good diagnosticians are not necessarily good therapists. I'm sure you have experienced that people who can be very precise in identifying what's happening to you are not necessarily the best people to help you out of what's happening to you. So um, the patient's intelligence is used at any stage of this practice. That applies as much to Buddhism as it applies to dealing with white men's medicine. Um, in the case of the Buddha, obviously the message, the fourth of the truth, is uh, the pragmatic, ethical and hands-on steps that are outlined in the Eightfold Path. Um, so in a way we have um, the symptoms, we have a case history, we have a diagnosis, we have a prognosis and we have a therapy. And these four steps are, uh, they can be found and have been, in fact, uh, framed later on in Indian medicines. I haven't found them earlier framed on than Buddhist teaching. I still have the suspicion there's somewhere there. And because I don't know the Vedas uh, to a very great extent and the Upanishads, I know a little better, but I have, you know, there's so much of them there that unless you've really gone to great length at uh, delving into this, and this is a lifetime's work, um, I still believe it's somewhere in there. I haven't found it, and I'm not aware of anybody else who has found it pre-Buddhist, but it is definitely post-Buddhist in Indian, in Vedic literature. It's there in, uh, in, um, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, it's to be found, which are probably, you know, Opinions vary when those, are, when those are to be dated. I personally think they're somewhere in the second century AD, so a few hundred years after the Buddha. But there are people who claim them to be earlier than the Buddha, which I deem personally unlikely, but it's not impossible. I have uh, occasionally been, been wrong.
more, more often than I care to admit here. <laughs> so be, be careful, be wary. <laughs> um, they turn up in other literature, in other Indian literature, and it is quite clear that the pattern of the four truths and the pattern of uh, methodology as a healing practitioner applies them uh, have been found very early on to have great resemblance. And it's uh, probably not a coincidence that the Buddha himself refers to his own role as that of a therapist, as that of a healer, as that of a medicine man. Um, and certainly Buddhist traditions has understood him to be that way, has understood in him uh, the quintessential therapist. So if we look at these four truths, we find them in many Buddhist texts as to be the core message of the Buddha. There, his awakening is framed uh, in uh, many accounts as, as an awakening to those four truths. And we can say, uh, certainly by the time Theravada tradition established what we know, uh, or Buddha Gosa, the commentator Buddha Gosa, established what we have now come to understand as being basically Theravada Buddhism, uh, an edifice consisting of the commentaries, consisting of the Visuddhimagga, and consisting of a particular interpretation of the suttas, which are obviously a lot older than that. Um, and this tradition is the most famous, it is historically the only one of the early Buddhist schools that has survived. And thus, it, um, in some ways, it, um, it has become the mouthpiece of early Buddhist traditions. Um, by the time this tradition has basically found its formative statements as an interpretation of the suttas, we can say that the four uh, noble truths have become the pinnacle of Buddhist teaching and all Buddhist awakening is framed within those four noble truths. It is interesting to find that there are teachings where the Buddha speaks of his awakening where he doesn't actually mention those four truths. Yeah. So uh, there is probably leeway that the Buddha has framed his awakening experience in other terms than just those four noble truths. We also find, interestingly enough, the pattern of those four truths, not applied to dukkha, but applied, say, to ahara, to food. Yeah. And if you remember, a few days ago I spoke of these four different questions. The question of, does it arise? Does it go home? Uh, what is its gratification? What is its disadvantage? Yeah. This pattern has a certain resemblance to those four truths. And it's quite possible that those four truths were initially not at all truth, but they were simply um, things to be done. Those four truths were four steps to be taken. They were approaches. They were strategies to meet particular patterns in our experience. And you know what gives me most conviction that this is the most likely interpretation of those four truths? It is going back to the very old suttas, and we find the Dhammajaka Pavatana Sutta, yeah, the sermon of the setting in motion, the wheel of the law. That sermon occurs twice, once in the Vinaya, in the monastic discipline, and once in uh, a little tucked away in the connected discourses. 
the discourse is almost identical, but in one instance, it, we are uh, told that it went on for several days because while the Buddha was sitting there with his first five disciples, uh, we are told that two of them would go to the village for alms and would get food for the other three one as well. So uh, we know that this has obviously been a span that was long enough that these people went to the village several times to get food. Yeah? And because the Buddha was explaining away at least to three of them while two others went to get food, we know that this duration of the discourse was a lot longer than what the text we have. The text is a reasonably short text. It's most famous, I trust you have all read it. I hope you have recited it or listened to it. Um, it contains the truth, the Eightfold Path, the Five Khandas, the Two Extremes, the Middle Way, a definition of suffering, um, the notion of grasping is referred to in there. And it ends with the awakening, uh, or the, technically the stream entry of Kondanya, Anya Kondanya. It's the basic, it's what um, very soon now, in the full moon of Asala, which is generally in July, um, the uh, Buddhist tradition celebrates as having the first sermon having been given three months after the Buddha's awakening, after he has been basking in his own happiness for several weeks, and then he walked from Bodhgaya over to Benares, 250 kilometers, or a suburb of Benares, Sarnat, and that's where he met his old uh, five disciples who turned away from him after the Sujata incident. Yeah, when he's, he's taken milk rice again after fasting and they found that um, uh, uninspiring and turned away from him and left him uh, on, on, on his own. So uh, three months after his um, awakening experience and after a few incidents on the road, uh, there's a first incident where he met two, two merchants and I think they gave him some food and he spent some time with them, but they didn't ask him any questions, so he didn't teach anything. <laughs> that, was one, that was one incident. The guys made some merit there, but <laughs> missed, a great, <laughs> missed, missed a great moment. And then there's this other encounter, which is not a pedagogical success story. Uh, uh, a wanderer, who comes up to the Buddha and says something uh, praising, saying, yeah, you look good, your, your features are clear, you have a radiance, uh, tell me who you are, uh, tell me what do you teach? And the Buddha kind of lets rip and says, you know, I'm a perfectly awakened Anuttara Sambuddha, I have no teachers, I proclaim the Dharma. And um, this was a little much for our friend. And the texts tell us he frowned his head and, s and said the, f the famous word hupeya, which would be something like, good on you. <laughs> may it be so. Literally, it means may it be so. And turned away and walked off. Yeah? So that was a... You can't say this was really a conversion experience, was it? So... Uh, those were the two encounters he had, we are told in the texts, and then he made it finally to Sarnat and his uh, five uh, fellow 
uh, samanas uh, were not particularly keen on seeing him. They thought actually they were not going to greet him when he arrived. So we are told and they finally, despite themselves, uh, gave him some respect and he he had to plead initially. He says, look, I have found something and uh, you may not believe me, but uh, if you recall, I you probably remember that I never spoke in such a way. And it may be good if you give me a chance to just speak and see whether something has changed, whether you understand that something has changed. Upon that, they uh, welcomed him and paid attention to him. And then uh, he gave them his first teaching. And this, so we are told this the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta. So the teaching on the setting in motion, the wheel of the law. The image is a wheel that r- runs on, that turns out of itself, you know, that does not stop anymore, that cannot be set, that cannot be held still anymore. It has a force to keep on moving. You know, it has become unstoppable. That's the idea of the, uh, the wheel of the law. And as you know, this has become the one of the great icons from very, very early Indian uh, architecture and uh, iconography, you find this uh, spoked wheel. In later days, it always has eight spokes for the eight uh, limbs of the path. But in fact, if you look at some of the old wheels, some of them have 15 spokes. You know, it's not at all, it's not at all matching the eight-spoke wheel as we know it now. And that wheel is across Buddhist world is depicted. You find it uh, in the in the very early places in India, uh, Barhut. You find it in Sanchi. You find it uh, in the, the the oldest Indian architectural and epigraphic uh, testimonies, and you find it right there on the Jokang in Lhasa. Uh, it's the emblem the emblem of the wheel, flanked usually by the two deer, the tear. Uh, that stand for the deer park in in uh, Isipatana in Benares, uh, Migadaye, the place. Miga is the deer, the place where the deers are, and the deer has become the symbol for listening. So you have the wheel of the law flanked by two deers, generally with beautiful ears. Yeah. So at that moment, the Buddha gives this teaching, and he outlines these four truths in a peculiar way. He refers to these four truths, and he says, these four truths have 12 aspects. And I have not proclaimed my awakening until I have understood all 12 aspects of these four truths. And in these 12 aspects, he uh, outlines for every of the truths, he outlines three stages. The first stage is generally um, there is this, atidukanti, yeah? there is this suffering, yeah? it's happening. Yeah? The statement is just this is happening. And then the second stage, this is the crucial one, this understanding of this is happening is connected with a verb. A clear appeal. In the case of the first truth, the verb that we are appealed to be applying is understanding. Parinyaya. Yeah. This truth of suffering is to be understood. This suffering is something to be understood. 
And then the third stage of that teaching is the realization statement. Uh, it is understood. Suffering is understood. From a position of awakening, suffering as a, an arahant, you can say suffering is understood. So he outlines his own process. He acknowledged the existential dimension, there is suffering. He acknowledged an understanding that something needed to be done with this suffering, namely he needed to understand this, and he acknowledges that this understanding has taken place in his particular case. Um, I suspect in our particular case there is a little bit of work left, um, but that makes it particularly important that we look at this second term, yeah, the word parinyaya, to be understood, something I need to stand under. So suffering is not to be believed. Believing in suffering does make you in no way free from suffering. Believing in the Four Noble Truths seems to be a highly ineffective way of going about suffering. You're in no, you know, if you have a knee pain and you believe in your knee pain, this is in no way liberative in my case. I don't know what your knee pains are doing, but my knee pains are highly unimpressed when I believe in them. Yeah, it does not help me, it does neither give me comfort, nor does it give me any um, tools, nor does it make it go away. Yeah. So, um, it is important that the notion of truth as we have it in the West is probably something that many of us associate with either validity, yeah, or we associate it with belief. Yeah. We are in Christian tradition, definitely, we, we're told that that which rescues us is our faith or our belief. And so if we are told that there is something that is true, we probably try to believe it. Some of us will try to disbelieve it, because we have learned that believing is maybe not always the best approach. Some of us are suspicious of anybody who tells us to believe anything. So we habitually disbelieve what people tell us, which is hard work uh, and makes us a little mistrustful, but uh, probably spares us credulity and uh, running after false prophets. Um, but it is probably fair to say that this isn't what the meaning was of the term satya. It's certainly not what the, the meaning of the term satya is now, and it is very likely not the meaning of the term satya in the days of the Buddha. And in fact, uh, as I said, uh, there are a number of indications that tell us that in the very oldest layer of the text, the term satya was not actually there, you know, which is what Indologists tell us, and uh, that certainly is something to be taken into account of. But it seems that we have all uh, taken these four truths and turned them into things that we put on our shrine. One of my teachers uh, made this funny story and said, look, it is as if you're in a prison and you're locked up and somebody sneaks you a key and you kind of, you take that key very gratefully and instead of using the key on your lock, you just kind of hang it up on the wall and start praying to it and revering it and venerating it and spending hours of it in you know, worship and prostration and um, and you stay there and basically think, yeah, this is this makes me free. This is my this is my solace. This is my refuge. And in fact, the purpose of that key is not, you know, 
to be revered. The purpose of that key is that I use it. I take it, put it in the lock, turn it, and walk out. Um, and in some way, the term truth seems to ins insinuate that this is something I need to adopt. This is what makes Buddhists Buddhists, you know, when they believe in the four truths. Um, in fact, that's not even true. You, know. you become a Buddhist, at least the Theravada Buddhist, you become simply by taking refuges. You don't even have to take the precepts. Did you know that? You know. Already taking the refuges, you're on board. You know. Later on, it gets a little more complicated. When you become a Tibetan Buddhist, you tend to have... Uh, uh, there's a few more stipulations, and even Zen Buddhists have a few more stipulations, but Theravada Buddhism is really easy to join. Yeah. It's really easy. Yeah. So just taking three refuges and you're, you're good. You know. Ah, precepts help, obviously, that's useful. And learning a little bit and meditating and keeping sila, yeah, that's all good stuff. But basically, you're on board for three precepts, with three refuges, which is, you know, this is really, this is really grassroots. Yeah. This is really very liberal. So we're not an elitist, elitist outfit. So what is the second truth statement? The second truth statement, the existential dimension is <clears throat> um, uh, there is a cause to suffering. Suffering is not God's will. It is not predetermined. You are not ordained to suffer. Uh, you know, nobody condemns you to this. There isn't a grumpy Monday morning God out there who condemns you to m suffer meaningless to his personal amusement through the world. Yeah, this is not the case. This is a bad Akinjin or fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> the Buddha's vision is suffering comes about through conditions and we can identify those conditions and we can address those conditions and if we do them do away with those conditions or we alter those conditions then suffering does not take place. There is a principle to this. There is a logos to this. There is a dharma to this. And if we understand that uh, dharma, we understand these principles and we align ourselves with these principles, then it is quite possible to not suffer. Well, that's not quite the whole truth, to be honest with you. There's a suffering, a dukkha, that is part of the lakanas of the three characteristics, which you don't really get out of. Even if you happen to be a Buddha, you still die. You may still get dysentery, you still have back pain. Yeah? But there's another type of suffering that is part of <clears throat> um, the four truths and this suffering that has to do with dependent arising. And that type of suffering you can give up. That suffering goes away. So it is possible that you have a back pain and you think this is not a problem anymore. You think you don't deserve a life without back pain. And then you still have the back pain but you don't feel this is an injustice, or you don't feel uh, somebody else should get it, or you don't feel somebody's to blame for this. So the second message, the second tier of the message is uh, that cause, that is, at the source of the arising of suffering has to be given up. The word for this is pahataba, to be given up. It implies it can be given up and it should be given up. Yeah. So the message here is uh, give up. The first message is understand. The second message is give up. 
The third of the truths states, it is possible for this cause to be given up. Technically, this is a, an inference by analogy. You, since all things that I can count on, uh, having experience of, seem to manifest cessation. In other words, they go home, they, 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 um, they tend to dissolution, or they stop, or they disappear, they taper off, some of them break off, some of them just gently and gracefully fade. Yeah. Since I can manifest, since I, everything that manifests demonstrates the pattern of cessation, the pattern of disappearance, the pattern of going home, uh, also suffering manifests that and the causes for that suffering. The Buddha uh, takes, uh, takes this a step further and says, you know, I have verified this, I can testify that not just all things you know of tend to dissolution, but uh, I know from my personal experience that even the last cause for suffering tends to disappear and can be resolved, can be brought to cessation. Yeah, that's the statement. So the verb that is used on the second stage of that third truth is the verb of satchikataba, that means to be realized. So we have to be understood, to be given up, and to be realized. Yeah, that's the message. I have skipped the realization stage. On the second stage, obviously, this uh, suffering has been given up. On the third stage, this uh, cessation has been realized, has been made real. And on the fourth truth, we have again, there is a path, there is an approach. Path sounds too big, to be honest. You know, it's, um, the word actually is patipata, majima patipata an approach of the middle. Path is when you turn back and see your own traces. That's when you know that's the path you've taken. You know, usually when you look ahead, you don't know where the path is. You know? So at best, you know, it's not a kind of sentiero luminoso kind of thing ahead. It's a path that is uh, to be found. Yet. So the Buddha speaks of a middle approach. He speaks of a middle teaching, as I said the other night, in the Kachanagata Sutta, and he speaks of a middle approach. A path makes it sound too glorious. Um, but that middle approach is outlined in a variety of ways, in ethics, in practice, contemplation, uh, training of volitional impulses, training in livelihood, training in meditation, and that path, this is the third, this is the, the second stage of the fourth truth. It says this path is to be developed, bhavetaba. Yeah? It has to be cultivated, it has to be brought into being. That's maybe the most beautiful of the translations. And then, you know, once you're completely free and awakened, you can say this path has been developed, and you know, that's the realization statement. Yeah? So you have these three questions, they're generally called um, Tzacha, Kicha and Pativeda. So Kicha, the second stage, is the really interesting one that speaks of the duty, yeah? what is to be done. 
There's an English monk called Yanavira who I found very inspiring for a while. He has lived uh, in, uh, became a monk in the 50s uh, in Sri Lanka together with his friend. Uh, they both were in the military and uh, have badly recovered from that experience, Second World War, and decided to, instead of going back to their very privileged lives, they were both very bright and quite well off or had good uh, material circumstances, and they instead became Buddhist monks. And one became really famous, uh, an excellent translator, master, craftsman, uh, uh, died young uh, and left in 10 years uh, uh, an opus, which is, uh, you know, something to be, something to be, <laughs> really to be emulated. It's really impressive what this man did in, in those few years that he had left. And the other one who is a lot less famous, who wrote and was uh, a great stimulation for his uh, more famous friend, and uh, he too died uh, on the tragic circumstances in the middle 60s, uh, in the middle uh, 1965. And um, posthumously his uh, notes and notebooks came out. And he corresponded with one of his supporters, uh, a judge, a Sri Lankan judge, English educated Sri Lankan judge. And he explained to him the Four Noble Truths in terms of Alice. Yeah, Alice. Alice meeting the bottle. Yeah, and remember, Alice, the bottle. Uh, what it says on the bottle is not what the bottle contains. Yeah, but it says what he, sh what, she, what, what she should do with the bottle, with the content of the bottle. So the bottle actually says the label on the bottle says, "Drink me." Yeah. So our our monk explained to his uh, interlocutor that basically he should treat those Four Noble Truths not as truth, very much in the vein of what I just tried to explain to you, um, but he should consider these Four Truths in the way Alice considered the bottle in front of her. So the first truth, basically it says, understand me. The second truth, the bottle says, give me up. The third truth, the bottle says, realize, uh, put me into practice. And the fourth truth says, develop me. I thought, he didn't really elaborate on this in a big way. It's just kind of a sort of a throwaway sub-clause in one of his letters. Uh, but I thought this is a rather ingenious way of referring to the appeal character, the hortative character of these four truths, which is so often myth, missed because the kind of capital T double-handed truth somehow seems to demand that I sink onto my knees and act in a gesture of faith and devotion to this. But in fact, this is unlikely to have been the intention of the Buddha and his teaching. I have a feeling these truths do not actually contain much doctrine. They contain a suggestion of how to approach uh, differing patterns. One pattern that is most dominant is called suffering. And this particular pattern is most effectively addressed with these four steps. You know, where does it arise? Can I trace it to a cause? Can it be given up? How do I do this precisely? You know, having understood what I have understood, how do I have to live? And I believe that is the power, the powerful message of those truths. And we probably still talk about them because in many ways they 
They're not something we need to metabolize. They're something we need to do. Yeah? This is not something we need to subscribe to or um, write into our diaries and keep in mind and rehearse and believe. It's something we need to do. We need to examine. Yeah. We need to uh, reconcile with its existence and stop turning away from. Stop pretending to be uh, thicker than we are. Yeah. Stop pretending to not know when we actually do know. Not see when we actually do see. Not feel when we actually do feel. And then to investigate, to examine. When did it start? What does it go back to? What did I really want when I got myself loaded with this one? Huh? And asking questions. Can this be let go of? Do I want to let go of this? You know, sometimes when you ask this question, it says, no, I don't. Sorry. Don't give me Buddhism. I don't let go of this one. It's too scary or it's too precious or I still don't believe it. And then we know that. We know that much. There's something in me that does not want to let go. That is doggedly insistent that I'm going to hang on to this one. Fair enough. This will probably going to hurt at some point, but it's better you know that you don't let go and you know that you have made this decision. You know that you have asked this question and you've come to the conclusion, no, I'm not letting go of this one. And when you pay the price for it, then you don't have to blame anybody else. You know, it was you who made this decision. Any conscious decision is more easily... Uh, we live with the consequences of conscious decisions more easily than we live with the conscious consequences of decisions we feel we haven't really made. Yeah, we feel a lot more easily victimized by things we feel we haven't had a say in it. It's a lot easier to acknowledge your own blunders or your own collusion or your own just private little idiocies um, when you feel you have actually had a say in the matter. Even though you may regret it, it's a lot easier to own up for the price you pay when you have had a choice in this. You may say, okay, that's as good as I could understand it then. You know, I was fooled, I was blind, I was... Uh, I was simply uninformed, I was blue-eyed, uh, but fair enough, you know, I know how it came about. I don't have to blame anybody else, I don't have to raise my fist into the sky and, uh, you know, curse my gods, I, I know, you know, I didn't let go. It's, you're better off with this. It's gonna hurt, but still we're better off with a conscious choice of not letting go than uh, pretending we never had a choice. And the last one, obviously, is how, how am I to live if what I know really matters? How can I translate my understanding, my sensitivity, my insights, my values? How can I translate that into actually lived behavior? How can I how can I walk my walk my talk? Yeah. How can I do justice in my outer being to what the inner being feels and knows? These are the big questions, isn't it? 
And suddenly these four truths become truly ennobling, as my friend John likes to call them. He calls them the four ennobling truths. And probably this is the most uh, useful translation, currently my favorite one. Um, so think of those teachings, precious teachings, powerful teachings, transformative teachings. Do not think, them, think of them too lightheartedly as, as clarified, crystalline and outlined truths. Yeah. They are appeals to you to take them up. They are appeals to you to practice. They are labels on the bottle and that bottle uh, is to be drunk. Yeah. And powerful things happen if you drink the bottle. Remember Alice just shriveled and down the rabbit hole. Huh? So sometimes unforeseen things happen. It's no guarantee that you'll be going from glory to glory. Yeah. So be, gird your loins and be, be ready for a ride. But uh, the medicine is there. The medicine man has, you know, has left us his traces. And if we have the faith to take up his medicine, uh, the vision is grand. The vision is freedom. The vision is awakening. The vision is contentment and completeness. Which, in view of some of our options, seems a rather promising vision to me. So, enough for me tonight.